the last poem of Bouquet of Red Flags is called Nightfall. When I go, I want to go in the same way night is said to fall, because it is day that does the falling, while night, at the other end of the twilight sky, to take its proper place, rises into evening. That's Taylor Molly performing his poem, Nightfall, which appears in his latest collection of work, Bouquet of Red Flags. And this is Artworks, the weekly podcast produced at the National Endowment for the Arts. I'm Josephine Reed. I'm not sure that April is the cruelest month, but for art lovers, it's one of the busiest and the most joyous. April is the month when we celebrate both jazz and poetry, which means that here at the Arts Endowment, which means that here at the Arts Endowment, we're preparing for the Jazz Masters concert and for Poetry Out Loud, the national competition where high school students from around the country match their skills in reciting classic and contemporary poetry. It's our good fortune that this year's host for the Poetry Out Loud finals is Taylor Molly. Taylor Molly is a poet who moves easily between page and stage. He himself is a four-time National Poetry Slam champion, as well as the author of four books. A former teacher and a passionate advocate for the profession, Molly is probably best known for a series of poems about his own experiences in middle school and high school classrooms. I spoke with Taylor Molly in his Brooklyn apartment, and I was trying to get a sense of the trajectory of his career, so I asked what I thought was a very sensible question. Taylor. What came first, teaching, writing, or performing? Writing. No, performing. No, teaching. My father used to write poems and and recite them, sort of rhyming toasts, occasional poems. He would recite them at his parents' 50th wedding anniversary and and my mother's 50th birthday party. When he died, I I found poems that that were written from the 1950s when his mother got a garbage disposal. And he had written a, a rhyming poem about that. Very sentimental, very funny, but yet very sweet. Sort of Dr. Seuss meets Robert Frost. So I grew up watching my father perform these poems at big family gatherings to the delight of everyone there. And so for me, poetry was always a very public art form, very, a very much of a performance. And so I brought that with me to my writing. And then I was an actor and I went to drama school and I didn't want to be a professional actor. And I brought my performance training with me to my presentation of a poem. And I went to graduate school and I was always a little bit too histrionic for the poets and a little too literary for the actors. So I discovered slam in in graduate school. But I thought, who's going to make a living as a professional poet? You know, you know what? I will, most of the poets I know are teachers. And so I was a teacher out of grad school. And I would write poems about teaching. And some of my most well-known poems are poems that I wrote about my daily experiences in the classroom. So when you ask a question like, what comes first? Poetry, teaching, or writing? It's hard for me because... In my mind, in a part of my mind, there's not much of a difference between all three of those. And I like to quote the Latin poet Horace, who said that the task of the poet is to either delight or instruct, and that we must reserve our greatest 
respect and approbation for those who can do both at the same time. So when I sit down to write, the goal is to both instruct and delight. But if I can't do both, knowing me, I would rather be merely delightful than solely instructive. But how is that not also the task of the teacher to instruct and delight? So teaching, writing, performing, they're all mixed up for me. Okay. So poetry was important to you when you were a kid. When did you start writing? Did you write when you were younger? Yes, I did. I like to tell people that I wrote my first poem when I was about five, about walking to Central Park and then walking back from Central Park and stepping in dog poop on the way to Central Park and my babysitter saying that you have to look down when you walk and then looking down and bumping into an old lady on the way back from Central Park and her saying, Taylor, you have to look up when you walk. So my first poem was about you know, damned if you do, damned if you don't. That's what I like to tell people. I'm sure it's not true. I do remember thinking that, but I don't think I wrote it down. Why poetry, Taylor? Why not short stories? Did you ever think about anything other than poetry? Sure. No, I did. And because I was an actor, I had been a playwright, and I have written short stories. But the immediate appeal of poetry, once I discovered the poetry slam, this, this competitive poetry reading, that sort of steered me towards poetry, perhaps because I'm a competitive person. The moth, you know, competitive story slams didn't exist then. But I'll tell you, I went to drama school in Oxford for a summer and studied with the members of the Royal Shakespeare Company, this program that Yale puts together to try to get American actors to study with British actors to get better at doing Shakespeare. And at the end of the program, there was a talent show. And I decided that I was going to write a new form of song because it was the mid-80s. And this, I was, I was going to write a rap. So I wrote this rap about living at, in Balliol College in Oxford for the summer. And it was a rhyming poem, basically rhyming couplets, you know, with, with a beat, with me doing beatboxing in between. You know? And it went over so well. And I think that was probably when I got really bitten with this bug of if I did my own spin on Dr. Seuss in a performative way, it just, it made me come alive. I just felt more alive reciting rhymes and parceling out what little wisdom I have in spoonfuls uh, laced with sugar, you know, so that, so that people would take them down. That's what, that's what I feel that's... most alive when I'm in front of a, a group of people entertaining and delighting and instructing them. Well, tell me about the poetry slams that you did. Do you remember your first one? Of course I do, yeah. I went to Kansas State University from 1990 to 1993. Kansas State is in Manhattan, Kansas. And the Poetry Slam that I went to was in Lawrence, Kansas, which is where the University of Kansas is. And uh, one of the professors on my master's committee, Larry Rogers, said, hey, have you heard about this thing called the Poetry Slam? And they do it over in Lawrence. And I said, no, but it sounds very much like what I would be interested in. And and it, it happened at a strip club on the fourth Monday of every month. They would give the dancers the night off and invite the poets to come in and reveal themselves in a different kind of way. And oh, there, was a, there was a pole on stage that you could use if you wanted to. There was a mirror on the back of the stage. I like to think that, you know, regular clientele of the strip club would sh show up and say, you know, where are the girls? And the bartender would say, oh, the girls have the night off, but it's a poetry slam. Stay, have a beer. And I'd like to think that some of them stayed and got hooked on poetry, but I don't know where that happened. I loved it. And my hands, my hands shook. One of the reasons that you, you should memorize your, your work is that if you don't, this will happen. 
you, people will see your hands shaking. And if you're really nervous, your legs shake. Have you ever had that happen to you speaking in public? You, your clothing Absolutely. will vibrate your nervousness. So you loved it right away. I loved it right away. Which is not to say that I was good right away. You know, I've developed over it. That was my first slam was, was in, let's call it 92. You know, so 23 years ago. When you started performing at slam poetry events, did you find that it also had an impact on the way you would write poems? Yes, I did. Yes, I did. Performance really should be part of your editing process. And sometimes when you perform a poem for the very first time, you'll discover that you didn't get a laugh where you thought you were going to get a laugh. And a line that you thought was going to be just like a throw-off line or maybe even a serious line suddenly finds bizarre humor. And uh, there are two ways of approaching that. I call it an error of performance. And you can either go back and fix, fix it in the writing or you change the way you perform it. I have, a, I have a poem called Playing Scrabble with Eddie about playing Scrabble with a dyslexic student who sp spells a bad word and spells it backwards. And... Uh, should I do the poem? Yeah, absolutely. Maybe I should just do the yeah. poem. <laughs> Playing Scrabble with Eddie. Despite his dyslexia, or perhaps because of it, Eddie can beat every other eighth grader in Scrabble. Kick their ass, in fact, and he knows it, though he can't say it, at least not in those words. Because if he said ass in my eighth grade, I would give him a detention on the spot. See, Scrabble was made for his mind. Show him a rack of seven tiles, and he can tell you in an instant ten words that use some combination of those letters. His mind is hardwired for confusion, for the jangling clangor of consonants and discombobulating vowels. But ask him to spell those ten words, and he may dare to read dear when the word reads dread. Combine dyslexia with hyperactivity, which now we call ADD, attention deficit disorder, though Eddie impishly says DDA, dida, 15 grams of riddle and dispensed by the nurse twice daily, an IQ of 162 and all the hormones of a 13-year-old boy, just dying for an education. And you've got yourself one horny, whacked out eighth grade genius staring at the seven tiles of his rack as if only getting them all in the right order was going to unlock all the secrets of the language. Eddie stares at my face, at the board, at his rack, at his rack, at the board, at my face. And I wonder what his dyslexic rearranging mind is doing now with my eyes and my ears and my nose. How many one-eyed Picasso-faced English teachers are staring back at him from the educated audience of his adolescence? How many monsters? Can he spell with my face? But here comes the word. K-C-U-F. Cuff? Eddie, I think I'm going to have to challenge you on this word, cuff. And Eddie reddens. Eddie reddens like he finally got the punchline to a dirty joke, which, in a way, he has. Eddie reddens like I finally caught him swearing, which, in a way, I haven't yet. And the letters pivot around the K-C-U-F. Oh, well, that's different, Eddie. Is that okay, Mr. Molly? Is that word okay, Eddie? Is that word okay? You got the F on a double letter square. You got the K on triple word. That's 51 points, young man. Way to go. Excellent, says Eddie. I'm going to kick your ass. And so I give him a detention on the spot. <laughs> so that's the end of the poem. But 
when the first time I performed it, I didn't know that that was the end of the poem. And I had another stanza about the appropriateness of language. Hey, how come, Mr. Molly, when I say the F word, I can do it on the game, but... And I said to Eddie, it's all about the appropriateness of language. I said, it's all about the appropriateness of language. You know, that was the way I thought I was going to end. But the first time I performed it at the Cantab Lounge in, in Cambridge, Massachusetts, where they still have a slam every Wednesday night, they just clapped and they you know, people were like with their applause saying that is the perfect ending of the poem and i was smart enough for once to realize i can't top this what am i going to do get them all quiet quiet down and then give them my gratuitous coda that i was going to put at the end so this is all by way of saying that performance should be a part of the of the editing process well you're talking about editing and performance and teaching is, is all wrapped up in that because teaching is fairly performative. When did you start teaching and why middle school? Hmm. Part of the terms of my scholarship at Kansas State University was to teach freshman composition. And I'd never really done any teaching before that. And I found that I loved teaching first-year students how to write different types of assignments, personal reflections and persuasive essays and research papers and evaluations and, and and so when I got together with my with my fellow graduate students on the weekend they always wanted to talk about the poems that they were writing and I wanted to talk about the assignments that we were giving and and the and the papers that we were getting in return and and so uh, upon leaving graduate school I thought well I've got two skills I can I can write and perform poems that was one skill and I can teach and the the teaching seemed like it was going to be the better road to go down if I wanted to pay the mortgage. And so I started teaching, but I wanted to teach younger students because the college freshmen that I had in Kansas, they, they, had, they already had too many bad mistakes. I was like, I need to catch them earlier. So I need to be a high school English teacher. Uh, and the, the, the first job I had was actually teaching eighth grade, and I loved it. I where, just where, where loved was eighth it? grade, Cape Cod. Cape Cod. I was a substitute teacher for a while, and that was miserable. You don't know anybody's name, therefore you don't have any power over anybody. There's a reason that God has a million names. And eighth grade was just was wonderful. And I've taught high school, and I've taught other, other grades. Eighth grade remains my favorite. Sixth grade, a very close second. And why middle school? I think there are so many teachers who avoid middle school. So many middle school teachers are only there teaching in the middle school because they're waiting for something to open up in the high school. And I, I think I'm partly a good middle school teacher because I was so much of a middle schooler in my heart. I'm a 13-year-old boy in my heart still. Uh, so I think I understood, I understood their language. Well, you wrote a poem called What Teachers Make that actually was kind of a game changer for you. It was. It was. That, that poem and YouTube. I wrote the poem at a, based on a New Year's Eve party in, that I went to in 1998 and performed it at the National Poetry Slam Championships a couple of times, and it got filmed. And then when YouTube was invented just in 10 years ago, 2005, that poem was put up on YouTube from the finals. And my career wouldn't be where it is today if it weren't for, if it weren't for YouTube. And whoever it was who illegally posted that video of me performing what teachers make from the whatever national championship it was that I performed it. And that is the poem I'm probably 
known for. The poem got separated from my name and, and rewritten and sent around the world as anonymous cyber spam. Many people listening right now have probably received some version of this poem, which I'll do right now. Yes, please do. What teachers make or objection overruled or if things don't work out, you can always go to law school. He says the problem with teachers is what's a kid going to learn from someone who decided that his best option in life was to become a teacher. He reminds the other dinner guests that it's true what they say about teachers, those who can do and those who can't teach. I decide to bite my tongue instead of his and resist the urge to remind the other dinner guests that it's also true what they say about lawyers, because we're eating after all, and this is supposed to be a polite conversation. I mean, you're a teacher, Taylor. Come on, be honest. What do you make? And I wish he hadn't done that. Asked me to be honest, because you see, I've got this little policy in my classroom about honesty and ass-kicking, which is if you ask for it, then I have to let you have it. You want to know what I make? I make kids work harder than they ever thought they could. I can make a C plus feel like a Congressional Medal of Honor, and I can make an A minus feel like a slap in the face. How dare you waste my time with anything less than your very best? I make kids sit through 40 minutes of study hall in absolute... No, you may not work in groups. No, you cannot ask me a question. So put your hand down. Why won't I let you go to the bathroom? Because you're bored and you don't really have to go to the bathroom, do you? I make parents tremble in fear when I call home at around dinner time. Hi, this is Mr. Molly. Hope I haven't called at a bad time. I just wanted to talk to you about something that your son said today in class to the biggest bully in the grade. He said, hey, why don't you leave that kid alone? I still cry sometimes, don't you? And that was the noblest act of courage that I have ever seen. I make parents see their children for who they are and who they can be. You want to know what I make. I make kids wonder. I make them question. I make them criticize. I make them apologize and mean it. I make them write, 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 and then I make them read. I make them spell definitely beautiful, definitely beautiful, definitely beautiful until they will never misspell either one of those words again. I make them show all their work in math class and then hide it on their final drafts in English. I make them realize that if you've got this up here, then you follow this in here. And if somebody ever tries to judge you based on what you make, you give them this right here. Here, let me break it down for you so you know what I say is true. Teachers, teachers make a difference. Now, what about you? And that poem made a tremendous difference. Thank you. Were you teaching at the time you wrote that poem? Yes. How did your students, do they hear about it? I don't know that I, that was I put my teaching career on hold. That's not true. In June of 2000, I said goodbye to my sixth grade homeroom class, and I haven't received health insurance through my employer since then. But I've never stopped teaching. You moved to being a real advocate for the profession of teaching. Is right. that fair? Yeah, no, that's, that's, that's fair. But a, but a strange advocate for the profession, because there are, there are wonderful advocates for the profession like Diane Ravitch and Jonathan Kozel, uh, who are educational uh, 
philosophers and researchers and and I'm not that. I'm just sort of I'm just sort of the the eloquent cheerleader. Are there characteristics that you think are really vital for a teacher to have? Yes. Well, I mean, the most important thing that any teacher can have is love for his or her students. Even when you do not like them, you need to love them. You need to love, you need, and also you cannot, you cannot consider teaching just to be something that you do on the side. It needs to be who you are or else you will burn out very quickly. There's a, there's a writer named Parker Palmer who, who, whose sort of main thesis is you, you cannot hide who you are. What you do needs to be who you are. If you're not doing what you are, then it's time for you to change that. And what about poets? Are there vital characteristics that a poet needs to have, do you think? Sure. An unflinching eye for observation. And also you need to know, you need to have at the back of your mind, why, why should anybody care? Why should anybody care about this? For me, poems need to be about things. And yes, there, you need to love words and you need to love language and you need to write my kind of poetry. You need to be willing to experiment with the rules of language. You need to know them in order to break them. But you need to answer that question. So what? Why, why, why should anyone care? I want to talk about a series that you run called Page Meets Stage. The series has been around for, for 10 years here in New York. Billy Collins, my, one of my mentors, and I were the very first pairing in November of 2005. And we've had 60 or 70 pairings since then. It's, it's become a monthly series that we have. The third Wednesday of every month here in New York City, we take a page poet, like a literary poet, a Pulitzer Prize winner. The subtitle of Page Meets Stage is Where the Pulitzer Prize Meets the Poetry Slam. And we've had Pulitzer Prize winners. We've had uh, United States Poets Laureate. And I pair one of them with a more performative poet like me, like a spoken word poet or a slam poet. And they read back and forth, poem for poem. And it's, it's a wonderful series. Uh, that's, it's not a slam. It's not a competition. Poetry wins every time. And, and it's, it's great to see the fans of one poet show up and, and discover that they, that they love the work of this poet that they've never, they've never heard of. You mentioned Billy Collins as a mentor. I call him my mentor. He'd be he'd be shocked to hear me say that, perhaps. I took a couple of classes with him at, at summer writing colonies and Billy is a is a spiritual mentor, or although I have taken classes with him, he's a spiritual brother. And you wrote a poem in your new book. Called Frank McCourt Joins Billy Collins on the Patio at Sunset. And this is entirely true. Because Frank McCourt was teaching a memoir class right next to uh, Billy's poetry class that I was in. And I remember when they would, when they would, uh, we would hear them laughing through the wall. And he, and he would, we, he would go, hold on a second. And he would go out the window and would go, McCourt, shut your crew up. <laughs> and then he would come back in and say, friends shouldn't let friends write memoir. <laughs> so they had an adversarial relationship. This was the Southampton Writers Conference that I went to maybe 2007 and this is a this is based on on that. Frank McCourt joins Billy Collins on the patio at sunset. The two of them, the one with whiskey, a chilled white wine for the other, watch as the sun dips into Long Island Sound. It's a beautiful sunset, says Frank in his brogue. To which Billy replies, back off, McCourt. The sunset is my territory and the sunrise. 
You stick to your miserable Irish childhood and leave us poets the sun and the moon, which rises even now, I call its name. Completely true story. Great poem. Thank you. I love it. And it's, it. it's totally found. You know, you asked what the qualities, are, the important qualities of a, of a poet are. And I said a strict ability to observe and to describe and also to always be having in the back of your mind, why should anybody care? Well, I thought, you know what, people, this is a delightful story. And if you change a few things, that doesn't have to be a poem, you know. In fact, there are a lot of people who are like, what, what makes that a poem? I mean, if you saw it on the page, you'd see it's written in nine lines, three tercets of equal length and you can see oh that there's a wisdom to where i break a line if you saw that on the paper you would say oh yeah okay that's 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 a poem but billy collins is always asked because his poems are sort of prosy narrative poems it's like what makes this a poem and he's sick of answering that question and i heard him once say prose is like an apple and poetry is a bird and you know what let's just leave it at that you're hosting Poetry Out Loud at the end of April. I'm very excited about that. The, these will be the best high school poetry reciters. That's not what I do. It is what I do. I, I recite mostly my own poetry. And I sure wish there were an equally well-funded contest that would bring students from all over the country to Washington to let them recite their own work and apparently all the kids go back to their hotel afterwards and have a slam i'm very much looking forward to it and i can't wait to see what what i learn about performance and i have an ulterior motive i want one of my poems to be put into the padilla of of 900 poems that they can choose from i think that would be a great idea do you think you develop a special relationship with the poem when you learn it by heart absolutely i had a teacher in college who said you can't actually claim to understand a poem until you have memorized it uh, for me of course the po the roots of poetry are bardic and oral before they were literary so you need to internalize the rhythms of a of a poem and things happen when you memorize a poem you realize oh my god i realize i know now why the author chose this word instead of this word which would have worked there it's because she was saving that word for the next line and you find out that there are things that are easy to write but that are hard to say you need to memorize a poem when you work with a poem and you memorize it you understand it better who do you read I read poets who I'm about to get at page meet stage. I go back to Billy Collins. I read Sharon Olds, Robert Frost I have a fondness for. And I read Sarah Kay, who used to be my protege. And then she became my colleague. And now she's my mentor. And she's in her mid-20s. And she's just traveling the world doing great things with poetry. Today we're in the middle of April, National Poetry Month. And so there's a lot of poetry out there that's being written today. A lot of my compatriots, including myself, are taking part in the in the 3030 poem a day challenge where we post a poem every day. Why does poetry matter? Why does poetry matter? It matters for the same reason that bright colors matter. Our world would just be a lot less interesting to live. Our lives would be less interesting if we didn't have it. I'm not quite sure why it matters, but it matters desperately. That was poet Taylor Molly. 
His latest collection of poems is called Bouquet of Red Flags. Taylor Molly will be the host of the Poetry Out Loud final, held at the Lisner Auditorium here in D.C. on Wednesday, April 29th, beginning at 7 p.m. It's free and open to the public, so come. And if you can't make it to the Lisner, no worries. We're webcasting it live. Just go to arts.gov for details. You've been listening to Artworks, produced at the National Endowment for the Arts. I'm Josephine Reed. Thanks for listening.